0: Lovely trolls, lovely trolls. We're big, bad, evil girls. Happy New Year and welcome to 2022. My name is Lissa, and I'm Charday, and we have our shit together because we have recorded this episode
1: on time
0: in December of 2021.
1: Yay. Yeah, well, our heart, our our we ourselves, we are in 2021, but our hearts are in 2022.
0: And our listeners are in 2022.
1: Our listeners are also in 2022. <laughs> yeah. That's how time works. So really, we're time travelers. Is what we're saying.
0: So I would like to start off this episode with, well, on a som- more somber note, um, we actually do have an apology for the wording that we used in our previous episode in the section about serial killers, and I think Chardé. You had something specific about that.
1: Yes. We had a longtime listener who goes by Garnet Dawn on Twitter reach out and express that an opinion that we had um, used some wording in the section specifically about serial killers and their ties to insanity and madness and media and how kind of linking those two together without further speaking of like how wrong it is. That serial killers are kind of tied to insanity and madness because if somebody is suffering with mental illness, that doesn't mean that they're more predisposed to be a killer, a murderer. It's a very problematic stereotype. And we just we didn't cover that part in the episode. So it was a very fair criticism. And they reached out on, like I said, on Twitter in a very like fair manner saying hey this kind of derails your entire point that you were making and we agree we could have worded that better we could have spent more time talking about it and destigmatizing it but we didn't and we apologize for that that was not our intention but honestly in situations like this sometimes your intention doesn't matter if you hurt somebody if you offended somebody if something that you put out into the world Left a a bad taste in somebody's mouth. The intention doesn't really matter, and all we can really do is apologize and promise to do better. And if and if we ever do anything like that again, if if somebody's listening and you don't agree with the way we worded something or maybe we're using outdated language, please please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media. We are at Slovenly Trolls on both Twitter and Instagram. We also have an email if you'd like to do it more privately than a DM. And that's slovenlytrolls at gmail.com. Our DMs and our inbox is always open. We are always striving to do better. And we want to just thank Garnet Dawn and thank you guys for listening. And please we're going to leave the door open for you to continue holding us accountable for what we say and yeah. what we put out into the world.
0: As content creators and as true researchers who are learning on these topics as we go, it's natural that we might get things wrong. So calling us out on our shit, keeping us accountable, it's all part of the job as well. And we will try our best to... Do that ourselves, but if we don't catch that, then we hope that you will keep us accountable. Yeah. So, on to this episode. What this episode will be about is the horny goddesses of the Forgotten Realms, also known as the sex goddesses, part one, because we have a (laughs)
1: two-part episode. What? You mean... We have too many opinions slash found too many things that we had to split up into two episodes again.
0: What? No, that's unheard of. I've never heard that before. We've, We've never, never done, done that, that before. before. mm Nope. So we will be covering sexy goddesses of the Forgotten Realms. In this episode, we will be doing Soon and Charest, two sex goddesses. And we will be talking about the role of D&D gods... And what role they, well, the role of D&D gods and what they play in D&D and specifically in the Forgotten Realms. We'll be talking about what inspired those specific deities. And of course, we will be talking about some opinions and be doing some analyses. And we would like to thank one of our patrons for this topic and for this title, actually. Kim Winson. Thank you. We love you. Thank
1: you. We love you. This is
0: great. Uh, we have some other patrons to mention. Becca Melema, Matt Dunn, and Scott Williams. And if you would like to hear your name here in the future, please go to our Patreon, which is
1: patreon.com slash can't be killed creations. We share it with our sister podcast. Yes. Right in the fields. Yes, we do. We get you can get an extra extra episode every month, and then we're looking to also expand in twenty twenty two. So if you're able, if you would like to hear your name or if you'd like to donate, we'd appreciate it. If you can't afford it, that's okay too. We're just glad you're listening. Yeah, couple content warnings. We will
0: be talking about sex. We will be talking about horniness, some good feelings. Tm
1: <laughs> <laughs> the office had a content warning. <laughs> How is it a content warning? I mean, sex, sure, but how is horniness a content warning? I don't know if you
0: don't like feeling horny if you're in the middle of a workplace and you
1: can't be turned off. So I guess don't listen to this episode if you want to. If you don't want to be horny, like that's. I don't know. I mean, we're talking about the problematic portions of these goddesses as well. But like, if you, you know. <laughs> feel a certain type of way. That's okay too. It's only natural, I guess. I don't know. We don't judge. We don't we don't judge. No, we don't judge. 100% no. We don't judge. Any of our episodes, if you don't like the content, you could skip it. No. <laughs> that said,
0: without further ado, we'll move on to part 1, the
1: context and role of gods and goddesses. Hi, editing Sharday here. After recording the episode, we actually do have one additional content warning to put up front here. Our conversation does briefly delve into the topics of sexual assault and rape. If you are uncomfortable with those topics, please feel free to skip this episode. If you want to give the episode a go and just skip over the parts where we mention those topics, we do give a warning before we start talking about them so you should be able to skip over those parts and continue the rest of the episode without us mentioning them all right that said let's get back to the episode part one context slash the role of gods and goddesses in the forgotten realms and D, but mostly just the forgotten realms because I believe both goddesses that we're talking about are specifically in the Forgotten Realms multiverse. So, for those of you who are unfamiliar with D anD, d it has a lot of lore. We've been over many different parts of its lore. One of the biggest aspects of that is a realm called the Forgotten Realms. What? While I <laughs> did, you forget about the Forgotten Realms? Yes. Well, then it did it they did their job. You forgot about them. So, mm. perfect. Essentially just think of it is just there are multiple like you know the Marvel Cinematic Universe how there are multiple different comic book universes where multiple different versions of like the same superheroes are. That's kind of how D&D lore is if you want a direct comparison. So, there is the Forgotten Realms, there is Eberron, there's bunch of other ones that I don't know off the top of my head. But we're specifically talking about the Forgotten Realms today because both goddesses, I believe, are from the Forgotten Realms. So for those of you who are unfamiliar, just a very literally so brief TLDR, it is a world in the D&D multiverse. That's it. That's all you got to (laughs) know. And if you're familiar with any set type of lore or um, books, D&D has a lot of novelizations. You may have even read a book, or uh, heard a story in the Forgotten Realms without knowing it. So if you've ever played a game or read one of the novelizations that takes place in Run, which is the name for the, the main world, that includes Icewind Dale, Baldur's Gate, Waterdeep, those kind of iconic D&D places, those are in the Forgotten Realms. So arguably, I think the Forgotten Realms is the most popular or most well-known world. And for good reason, because it's I think the oldest one that they ever used after Gary Gygax's World of Greyhawk. That was another one, Greyhawk. Greyhawk's another world. I know things about stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> briefest of run-throughs. The Forgotten Realms was created by Ed Greenwood. We've talked about him before on the podcast, I believe. When did we talk about Ed Greenwood in the Drow episode? If I I'm think not mistaken, so. yeah. Because the drow were created by Gygax and they were fleshed out by Ed Greenwood. Because Ed Greenwood created the Forgotten Realms kind of as his own homebrew project in the very, very early days of d and mm-hmm. He published an article or a couple of articles in Dragon Magazine detailing his world. TSR liked it so much that they bought the rights to it and I believe hired him on mm-hmm. and adapted a lot of his world building, which is my literal dream job. Build an entire world yeah. for like a company to use. Sign me the fuck up, fam. Ed Greenwood, if you ever listen to this, how do I do that? And can you hire me? Thanks. Anyway.
0: <laughs> I think he like I I watched this interview. I think he like started writing what became the Forgotten Realms, like when he was like five years old or something, supposedly.
1: Oh, that's
0: so pure. Yeah,
1: which is kind of cool. I love that. We won't go into how he created all of the Forgotten Realms and all of that jazz. We're specifically in this episode going to be taking a look at gods and how he went about creating the gods, why he did the things that he did, and how they relate to the episode today. So what does Ed Greenwood have to say? I found a quote from his Twitter i forgot to date but it's somewhat recent because twitter came out in 2007 so it's at least within the last 15 years <laughs> prime research here but <laughs> i found a quote from him that basically summarizes kind of ha- the g- god's power in d which is all deities in the forgotten realms or in the realms are created out of sheer belief so think of a god's power because it is a polytheistic, which Lyssa will get into a little bit uh, specifically about pantheons of gods and how that works. There are multiple gods. And the gods can only exist if people believe in them. So think of them like Tinkerbell in Peter Pan. And if you say, I do believe in Pelor. I do. I do. Pelor exists. If you say, I don't believe in Pelor. I don't. I don't. He loses power and probably dies because another god swooped in and stole his power or just flat out killed him because gods are ruthless for a reason the bulk of the information we're getting about how ed ed greenwood created gods and goddesses in the forgotten realms comes from the first article he ever got published in dragon magazine about them which is dragon magazine number 54 we've talked about dragon magazine before it was a tsr published magazine all about D D. people would submit their homebrew stuff lore stuff people who wrote for D would have articles in it bunch of really cool artwork that kind of shipping and he wrote a article for them called down to earth divinity one dm's design for mixed and matched mythos and it's a huge article we'll link to it because there are there's a huge archive of dragon magazine articles out there for people to peruse and it's a trip and this one is basic essay format but and it gives a brief description of each god and goddess, what their influences are, um, what inspired them, what their domains are. And they also have friendly neighborhood tables, got a god table in there that has the gods and goddesses, what their domain is, what their alignment is, I think what their symbol is. So it's broken up into all these different sections. It's, it's very detailed. And you can see. A lot of familiar names in there, which includes Soon, who we'll be talking about in this episode, and Loth. our fave, our fave god, goddess. Mommy. Mommy? Sorry. Mommy? Sorry. Mommy? Mommy? Sorry. She was technically already in the lore, but this was, like, again, one of the first instances that we see of him, like, fleshing out stuff or that would later become D&D canon. So if you want to hear more about Loth, listen to episode 9 where we talk all about her and Ellestri. He also mentions a goddess named Loviatar, who we're not going to be talking about in this episode. We're saving that for part two. So st- if you know who that is, you know what fun we're going to have with that <laughs> later. <laughs> <laughs> little tease for you. So he, in this article, he details... Why he felt the need to create his own pantheon, basically, because at this time, Deities and Demigods, which we have also gone over in this podcast, Deities and Demigods was really the only book available that really fleshed out what religion meant in Dungeons and Dragons and AD&D specifically. It was their first big like, here's the lore, have it. And by here's the lore, I mean, here's a bunch of gods and goddesses who already exist, including Finnish gods, <laughs> They got Finnish gods. They got Egyptian gods. They got Norse mythology. Any pantheon that you can think of, they probably have it in gods and goddesses or deities and demigods. And they gave stats to all of these famous deities. So they basically just stole a bunch of stuff and put stats to it, which, you know, is a thing that you can do. But Ed Greenwood said that's not good enough. And I have a quote here that I just thought really sets the tone for why he did it and it's not super relevant but i wanted to share it anyway ddg which is shorthand for deities and demigods gave dms a wide variety of pantheons to choose from a variety that seen as a whole tended to conflict in basic philosophy grand design divine portfolios and overall tone this seems to preclude using all at once and my note here is the shade (laughs) there's basically just Too many conflicting pantheons. Like You could technically have Anubis and Zeus in the same world, which to his mind didn't make any logical sense. So he just decided to create his own, which we love that for him. Another major reason that he felt the need to create gods and goddesses, and in such detail as well, like if you read the article, which we don't have time to go all the way through, it is just... It's a a fantasy and world builder lover's dream to go through this. Ed Greenwood is a true master of his craft, honestly. Might not agree with some of the stuff he did, especially with Drow, but very, very detailed, very talented, very creative. He says in the article that he created gods to give the players consequences for their actions. And if you've ever played D&D, you know one of the pinnacles of playing D&D is your actions. They got to have consequences, or at least I think so. Part of my DM philosophy. It's part of a lot of games that I play in. And he goes on to kind of clarify that by saying DMs not using supplements like deities and demigods, like the guidelines in that, or not finding them adequate, they always had to wing it, or often literally let clerics and other characters get away with murder. So he, in his games, was coming across uh, paladins and clerics specifically, but also other players who were praying to deities. They were aligned with a lawful good God, but they were more common term in d and now as a murder hobo. Like they would just murder people for either experience points or murder them just for funsies to see if they could do it, that kind of stuff. And he's just like, well, that doesn't make sense because they're in they are doing this like in the name of a God. They're praying to this God who is a good deity in terms of alignment, but they're doing evil acts. They're not really doing what the gods would probably want them to do. So a big part of him for creating gods and goddesses was to give them consequences. Be like, hey, you can't be a cleric of... uh, I'm just going to keep using Paylor. Can't be a cleric of Paylor and just slit the throat of a shopkeeper because they didn't give you a discount. Like, that's not how that works. Paylor's is not going to be happy with that if you're basically using his name in vain. Um, Another fun fact that I found is that he, he also explains why the gods in the Forgotten Realms are always at war with each other, because that's, that's also something that deities in this world are known for. The gods are always fighting. They're always stealing each other's abilities. They are seducing each other. They are murdering each other. They are one big dysfunctional family. And he explains that the origins for this idea was to one- cover the changeover from campaign to campaign or like from addition to edition so people could basically start from scratch if they wanted and have the ability to do so with different deities having different abilities and also to make sure that the gods don't have too much power like they are gods but part of the fun of d d as a player is leveling up it's being powerful yourself and not necessarily becoming a god but having the ability to do that unhindered because I feel like if these gods really were as power hungry as, quote, gods should be, they would always be trying to tear heroes down or tear people down who are getting too much magic or too strong at what they do. So he created this kind of system of constantly fighting gods to kind of keep that in check. So it's kind of a nice little Brief introduction to how Ed Greenwood created the gods and goddesses, and how how they're supposed to work in D anD. d Lissa also found some very interesting, very interesting things. I believe right about how they work.
0: Yeah, so gods are slightly different in D anD. d compared to real life. Rather than being just these. Sort of beliefs that you believe in, based on based on lore and history. Gods in D anD D are very much real. There is no ifs ands or buts because they have their own planes. You can visit the planes. They abide there. They have their own servants. They do biddings. They talk to you. You can pray to them, and they'll answer your prayers with words, with manifestations of themselves, um, and they can visit the material plane in what they call avatars, which are sort of like a less powerful version of of themselves, which has magic and power, but isn't as powerful as they are themselves. So gods are a source of magic and they are a source of power within D&D and they are very powerful themselves and they are part of the world building and the lore of D&D and what makes D&D immersive and what makes it realistic in a way because in real life people do believe in gods and and higher beings So they have different gods for you to choose for your character to create a well-rounded character and to create a character that gains power from somewhere. Because in D&D, you have to learn magic from somewhere, whether that's innate magic, whether that's you read books to learn it, or whether you make a deal with a demon sort of thing. I've never played a magic user. I don't know if that's how this works.
1: That's a lie. You just started playing a druid. Where does your druid get magic from? Um, I
0: am still figuring it out. We're level three, so the magic was inside her all along. Yes, for until I figure it out, it was inside her all along.
1: <laughs> Perfect. that fair. Maybe
0: she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline.
1: Maybe it's maybe it's God magic. <laughs>
0: exactly. Anyway, to the point, <laughs> so D&D, the world is polytheistic, which I actually didn't realize sort of what that meant, because it, in a way, it's easier for you to choose one god for your character to worship. But because, you know, I, I think I, I, I come from a background where, you know, you usually believe in one god. I don't come from a background of being polytheistic or or knowing how that works so when you are in a polytheistic civilization you believe in many gods and you pray to many gods depending on or or you pray to different gods for different things so you'll pray to the goddess of harvest for a good harvest you'll play you'll pray to the goddess of weather for weather phenomenons you'll pray to the goddess of hunting for catching prey and it's not just you pray to the same one over and over again with all your problems it's you pray to different ones and Mm -hmm. you don't just focus on one so the gods are specifically talked about in length in the well in terms of the forgotten realms gods they're specifically talked about in the Faith and avatar source book which is part of 2e the Forgotten Realms gods have a specific power unlike normal gods in D&D. So what the Faiths and Avatars sourcebook says is on page two. It says you'll most likely settle on a patron deity who will escort you from the spirit realm, which they call the Fugue Plane, to your afterlife with your chosen patron deity. But here's the twist. Those who firmly deny any faith or have only given lip service most of their lives and never truly believed are known as the faithless after death. So you either believe in a God and your God will take the soul of your character and transfer it to their plane where you'll live in the afterlife, or... You're considered what's faithless after death. So if you are faithless, what happens to your soul is it goes into something that is called the wall of faithless. A wall that's in the death realm, and it's a fun time. You turn into a living wall in the realm of the dead, and you're left there to dissolve. Your soul literally goes on a wall and it's there to dissolve until the end of time or until some random ass demon comes over and is like, hey, I need a soul, and then grabs it from the wall and takes it off and uses it for nefarious purposes. So is
1: that like their hell? Because that sounds like hell. Yeah. So it's sort
0: of like a personal hell for you. Um, So it's this unearthly greenish mold that holds the wall together and destroys these souls. Your choices are, if you are in the Forgotten Realms, to either believe in a god, and basically get extra powers and have an afterlife, and slash go to your version of heaven in the deity, with the deity or patron who you chose, or... Dissolve on this green mold wall in uh, the death plane because you didn't choose a god. Because these,
1: these are the choices you have. So if you choose to just be atheist. <laughs> yes. You're just like, nah, no, not allowed. You're going to perish if you do that. No. Like, no atheism allowed.
0: Please be interesting and choose a god to follow.
1: Well, what if, you're just, what if your character just isn't interested in gods? Because that's completely valid, too.
0: Well, it's, it's valid until you die, and then you just go moldy <laughs> on a green wall. Because that's, that's where you spend your afterlife, molding on a green wall. I feel like there's some commentary to be said about that. So what I found out is that Ed, Greenwood, he actually said that he didn't come up with this moldy green wall. It wasn't his idea. Oh. So it was actually TSR who came up with this idea to create this wall of the faithless as a game mechanic to make players choose a god for themselves to make it more immersive and make it more interesting to create a more well-rounded character, apparently, and that he didn't have it and he didn't like the idea. Because you can't be well-rounded unless you worship a god. Apparently, or they just that doesn't. I don't know. Maybe they're just hardcore sense. Christians, and they're
1: like, "We believe in a God, and uh, maybe you should too." Uh, well, I mean, if Gary Gygax was calling the thought calling the shots, I mean, it, that's a possibility. He was known for being a religious man, mm-hmm. and for very likely, kind of subconsciously or consciously, putting his ideals <laughs> <laughs> into D anD. D Uh, so, I mean, yeah, that's a way to look at it. It's just one big symbol for, like, don't believe in gods, fuck you, which is icky. Yeah. Just leave it at
0: icky, I guess. There was a third option, but it's also not a good one. The only good option is to have a god and believe in one. So the only, the only worst thing, well, I don't know if it's worse or if it's better, but the only third option is you... Follow a god and then specifically do what the god asks you not to do. So you go against the wishes of the god and then you're also suffering the consequences because there's a whole trial and you get p- eternal punishment. But like you get eternal punishment anyway. Yeah. Even if you don't follow or choose a god. So two out of three are bad options, one out of three is good. And the only good option is to choose a god. So that gives gods of the forgotten realm specifically this weird power
1: dynamic over the characters yeah' it, it it supersedes a God complex like there is a there you there are God complexes out there, multitudes of them. this kind of supersedes all of that because mm-hmm. it's it's literally controlling somebody's not only life but their afterlife, which you know I think. It could be argued that even real-life religion is mostly about your afterlife and trying to prepare yourself for your afterlife rather than your life-life. At least how I've studied it, I could be very wrong. Depending
0: on the religion, I think, but yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely depending on the religion. So, yeah, that's – I don't know. It it doesn't sit right with me because, again, I'm always a big advocate for player choice. Mm. I – I love it when people go against the mold. So if I had, I do, I, de- I literally, I DM a character who just flat out just doesn't think gods exist, even though she has interacted with them. And I'm looking at the player who plays her right now. <laughs> you little shit. <laughs> I, I don't know what we are talking about. It's so funny because Riva, who we've talked about on this podcast before, your half-orc barbarian, does not believe in gods. She's had gods literally talk in her head. She has interacted with people who firmly believe in gods and have kind of proof that they do exist. But because she herself has not seen anything yet, I have just a feeling that even if she were to see a god, she wouldn't actually believe it. She would just think that they were some very powerful mage. And then your other character, who we recently retired literally fucked a god there is no in between (laughs) there is no in between either fuck gods or you don't fuck with gods (laughs) there is no in between D &D, because you'll be punished whatever way you go unless you fuck Mm -hmm. a god i guess i don't know so yeah so
0: there's this whole concept of like these power tripping gods so does that explain the massive appeal that gods have two characters so does it explain why so many people follow gods do they know that their souls are fucked unless they believe in gods and that's why everyone follows them Mm. on the material plane and do they care or is this like a game mechanic sort of thing and you only find out
1: once you're too fucked to be able to change the (laughs) outcome of your life I mean, I think in ed- any everything in early D anD D starts as a game mechanic, and then it it kind of spirals into something else. Usually, like we we've gone over multiple times on this podcast, like how problematic it is to turn like serious subjects like religion or madness into a game mechanic. Yeah, and just trivialize because you're 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 treading a very thin line between trivializing it and not trivializing it. So. I think we can leave that up to interpretation. It's up to how people interpret it. Yeah. I'm all about, if you want to worship a god in D&D, there are some really interesting gods. And we're talking about two of them today. The gods and the lore are super interesting. If you want to engage with that, awesome. If you don't and you don't care, your character doesn't care, that's okay too. You shouldn't punish player agency for like Mm -hmm. just having a character quirk that's just like, I don't believe in that. But that's a personal opinion. That's my opinion. Yeah. Another thing that I had to say about the goddesses
0: of the Forgotten Realms is that, again, like in the other... We've talked about this before, we'll talk about it again in all of the episodes, probably, is that the gods of D&D take inspiration from the real world examples. So there are sex goddesses and or love goddesses in the real world that they've literally taken and they've put into... A different form, changed the name, changed their appearance, slightly altered, put a game mechanic on into the game itself. Ed Greenwood did say that the realms, the Forgotten Realms, was never supposed to mirror the real world, but in selling his idea to, the, to TSR, it was easier for him to explain what the realms was by using real world example. Examples, because he could just say, oh, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, Hinduism. So it's polytheistic. Oh, it's like Harry Potter, where it looks like this. Sade. <clears throat> <Chardé>. What? <laughs> I, don't know what you, I
1: don't know what that reference that you
0: just made is. So TSR, what TSR had were two senior designers who, according, according to Ed Greenwood, were history teachers and who loved real world analogs. And so when Ed Reedwood came to them with these ideas and these examples of what he wanted to do with the Forgotten Realms, they took the real world analogs and they ran with it.
1: Hmm.
0: So blame TSR for the real world examples, essentially.
1: (laughs) Which we will get part of each of the sections because, you know, we dedicated one section to each of the goddesses we're going to be talking about. So essentially, we're just basically putting the blame on Probably these two history teachers for like how easily we were able to pick out the quote real religion equivalents, I guess, Mm. like based on real religious figures. It it was pretty easy to pick out where the inspiration came from. It could have been part Ed Greenwood, but probably also these two specific history teachers who we do not know the names of. Yeah. And I think you had some stats to finish us up for this section. (gasps) I do. I found an opportunity for stats and I ran with it. So now that we've kind of given you an over very watered down overview of gods and D&D, because again, we're just speaking in the context of Forgotten Realms of Ed Greenwood's Forgotten Realms of how they work in the context of this specific episode of D&D. We're going to be, as always, probably glossing over a lot of stuff, and we apologize for that, but we're trying to be as concise as we can to kind of round out this section. While we were doing our research, and specifically, like we were just saying, how these goddesses have mirror images, or you can very clearly see where they got inspiration from when talking about the domains of these gods or even the descriptions of these deities. A lot of the goddesses that we were running into when we were trying to like mix and match this stuff were women. And so I got really curious and was like, huh, how many examples of real life gods and goddesses? Like, how, how does that look for, in terms of like, you know, sex gods? How many of them are men? How many of them are women? How many of them are genderless? Because in many religions, gods don't have a gender. So I didn't. Okay, so I got these stats from Wikipedia. Don't judge me. It was the only big list of of like love and sex and fertility gods that I could find. Wikipedia, sure day. It seemed the most okay. It's just a list. It's not like I was looking into the lore of it. It It was. It was just a list. Wikipedia is a great bouncing off point for research. Your high school teachers were wrong. (laughs) well not really like don't cite wikipedia but like using it as research isn't necessarily a bad thing also i'm just trying to justify myself using wikipedia (laughs) for these stats but we are calling ourselves researchers we are i did my own statistics okay i did my own spreadsheet we'll link to it in the in in the sources like we are researchers i was what's the correct terminology for this i was gonna say statistics No, I can't even pronounce it. I see the word in my head and I can't even pronounce it. I turned the list from Wikipedia into stats. That's my own. I did that. (sighs) Anyway, (laughs) this is a it, it might not be entirely accurate because it's coming from Wikipedia. There is some room for error, but because it was the most comprehensive list I could find, that's why I chose it. That's my research methodology. You're welcome. So the list that they have. Includes deities with domains over sex, romance, beauty, allure, pleasure, and everything in between of that. Um, So any domain that you can think of having to relate to those major areas. So there were 92 gods, goddesses, deities. Of those 92, 51 were identified as female goddesses, which is 55%. There are 36% male gods and nine percent others so those who don't have a gender or who use terminology that the gender just isn't explicit so with the 55 percent of goddesses it, there's a clear not super majority but a clear lean towards usually if you talk about a sex god goddess there's a higher chance that that deity is going to be female or female presenting which i thought was interesting Because, I mean, I kind of figured it for love, but sex, I don't know. Because, you know, women and sex, women don't have sex. You know this. We don't, we're not sexual beings. We don't have wants and needs and desires. Why would we have goddesses who represent that? Weird, right? (laughs) I just thought that was a good, a good show of not only because Ed Greenwood and his two history teachers or the two history teachers he collaborated with. They took a lot of inspiration from real life. I just thought it was worth mentioning that, yeah, there is a actual statistical, according to Wikipedia, lean towards female sex goddesses. So I just thought that was interesting. know. what do you think?
0: I can, I can see a lot of sex gods being female presenting. I don't know why, but because I... Guess I assume that, like, goddesses of fertility, goddesses of beauty, goddesses of... Those are usually female or female-presenting, that I sort of just assume that sex gods would be female-presenting as well. So it's not that surprising to me that, yes, there are gods who have a lot of sex and are like man-whores, but all gods sort of are have a lot of sex but they're not specifically gods of sex they just have a lot of sex so for me it's not that surprising unfortunately that they are female presenting
1: yeah i i can agree with that i think statistically i mean i, I mean we could probably look into it statistically i think they're are probably maybe more instances of men sleeping around in terms of mythology than there are women sleeping around. But I think you're right in that for some reason, women are just given fertility for an obvious, I guess, quote, reason why most fertility goddesses are women. But, you know, women are seen as softer, so they're obviously given all of the emotional domains like love and pain, and are there any other emotions in love and pain? <laughs> feelings. Goddesses of feelings. Sorrow, happiness. Yeah. I don't know. So the fact that um the majority of D&D goddesses that we found, like D&D deities that we found are goddesses. Like, they are feminine presenting. They are canonically written she, her. They, it's not surprising, especially if they drew inspiration from real life, which I respect Ed Greenwood a lot, but you are – how do I phrase this in a nice way? You always take inspiration from real life when you world build and when you write anything. So completely writing off that this isn't like anything in real life is absolutely 100% probably yes incorrect (laughs) because – You need to ground even fantasy, world building, and stories in reality. So even if you're doing it subconsciously, you're still drawing from real life. That doesn't mean you're a a bad storyteller or a bad writer or a bad creator. You just take things from real life. You ground it in reality. That's what makes good stories. That's what
0: makes it believable.
1: Exactly. Because if it was too far-fetched and too outside of the realm of reach, then people couldn't identify with it people couldn't empathize with it people couldn't connect to it so at the end of the day we're all sharing this lone planet with each other so if you don't have some sort of connection with that then you're just kind of drifting off anyway <laughs> what a uh, <laughs> what a way to end off this section existentialism <laughs> we end off this section existentialism Unless there's anything else you would like to add.
0: Um, More male sex gods, please, (laughs) and thank you. XOXO.
1: I think I can get on board with that. So without further ado, that concludes part one, the context, the greater context of gods and goddesses. Let's move on to part two, S. Well, hello, it's me, Sharday, here with another mid-roll ad, Today's episode is sponsored by the Justice Speakers Institute. Since 2015, the Justice Speakers Institute has been the gateway to justice system leaders worldwide. Its founders and associates are internationally recognized experts with decades of experience and mastery of over 300 subjects impacting the justice system. JSI has an unparalleled breadth of expertise on subjects from procedural fairness, drug and alcohol testing, mental health and substance use disorders, and administration of justice to domestic violence. It is the mission of JSI to be the essential resource on justice issues. Their vision is to promote justice and the rule of law worldwide. They will consult with you to meet your program objectives, whether you need a keynote speaker, a presenter, an editor, or a consultant. JSI provides exceptional consulting services based on their core values of excellence, integrity, respect, commitment, insight, collaboration, and fun get in touch at justice speakers slash contact Thank you so much JSI for sponsoring. Now, back to the show. Part 2. Sharres, ship. Sh- how, how do we how are we going to pronounce it this episode? <laughs> I don't know. Cuz you've been saying Sharres, but I've been saying Sharas. So like I think, what do we do? I, th-
0: I think you're just um,
1: biased because your name is Shar. That is correct, and I would like no more comments about that for the rest of the episode. I call bias. <laughs> okay, I didn't choose this. Okay, like I didn't choose this life. I didn't choose my own name. <laughs> it's weird. I'm not used to this. Okay, Sharas, Sharas. Not me. This deity. There is a clear distinction. Okay, this (laughs) this is not
0: an identity crisis. Thank you.
1: No, this is not an identity crisis. I have those off recording. I was gonna say off camera, but we're not. We don't have face cam (laughs) for this podcast. Uh, So, Shara's is a good alignment deity. Usually, chaotic good. I'm going to go into a bit of her background, her lore, into her appearance, and what she represents. A little bit into her pedagogy, a little bit into who worships her, etc. Just like a, an overview. I'll be, gla- I'll be glazing over a lot of stuff as when you get into any lore in D&D. There's a lot. We had to cut a lot out, but I think we, for both sections, got the highlights down pretty well (laughs) so what you need to know about Charess, and please lissa butt in with your opinions because there's a lot of stuff in here that i'm sure you got a lot to say about so please interrupt me if you would like she is a demi goddess demi power first opinion (laughs) when you have no 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 when you have something to say not when you want to be a dick (laughs) What's you the number sure? one rule of this podcast? Don't be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> She's a demigoddess. demi power. She is part of the Forgotten Realms Faerun Run pantheon, but she actually had her origins in another pantheon called the Mulharandi. I uh, won't be going too much into that, but just know that she migrated from another pantheon. She was first mentioned in Advanced Dungeons & Dragons in the Forgotten Realms campaign set. Also, I think specifically, it's like a big campaign set, and the specific book that she's references, referenced in is called The Cyclopedia of the Realms. It's is in 1987. But she was fully fleshed out in 2e and 3.5. She is the goddess of halls, Hedonism, And sensual fulfillment. Some of these domains, I mean, they're not really domains. Some of these, like what she rules over and what she's associated with changes throughout the editions, but those are kind of the three main ones. Uh, Her symbol is just a pair of red lips, like blood red. She's wearing some bomb ass lipstick red. And she also has many wonderful nicknames. And I wanted to highlight a few because I think it really just sets the mood as to who this goddess is. She is known as the Lustful Mistress, the Feline of Felicity, the Succubus of Sensation, and the Tawny Temptress. (laughs) Who wouldn't? Can you just imagine Char-S being introduced in a ball? And you know when you introduce in a ball in like a fantasy world or historical fiction piece and you have to list all of their, like what they're known as, like their titles? Can you imagine? (laughs) Introducing the lustful mistress, the feline of Felicity, the succubus of sensation, (laughs) the tawny temptress herself, Char-S. Wow. Uh, Like what a power move, honestly. Titles, Yes beautiful isn't it great I love I love it and she is the only as far as I know goddess of sex basically although sex is never explicitly said in any of her descriptions and I'll get more into that later but just think of her as like, she is the only explicit god, goddess, because there is later on in mythology, which we won't get too much into, there is, I think, at least one other one who is a male, but she is the only sex goddess. So what does she look like? What? Let me paint a picture for you. She has many forms, as do many gods. As Lyssa mentioned earlier, they have avatars, and she has many different appearing avatars, but... Her most well known appearance is <clears throat> this is from 2e Powers and Pantheons. She is a strange and radiant demi power whose beauty is rivaled only by soon, but whose aura is tinged with faded promise. Which I I'm not a hundred percent sure what that means, but I'm pretty sure it's offensive. <laughs> what is What is Faded Promise? Like I I feel like it's it's meant to mean like she's not a virgin that's how i read it like she gives the promise of this like beautiful but because we associate beauty with purity and she's very clearly not pure as we will get into that's how i personally read it i i for some reason my my thoughts went to
0: like she used to be young but now she's old because she's a faded promise
1: oh that could be it too Again, but that's that's also hampers on beauty standards, though, because women in society, as we get older, we're not as we're not as regaled as young women. So you get wrinkles. Fuck you. Basically, (laughs) she is often depicted as a voluptuous human female with the head of a cat. And I want to stress the term voluptuous because in 2E and 3E specifically, that's where most of her description comes from. The, the word, I didn't get a stat for it. I'm kind of kicking myself for not. But the amount of time she's referred to as voluptuous is staggering. Like they could not think of another word. It was just voluptuous. So voluptuous, female form, head of a cat. So furry. She dresses. Yes. Yeah, so don't bring the furries into this. God damn it. But, I mean, they are already in this because, I mean, you're not wrong. She dresses in provocative clothing ranging from that of a, quote, toddy tart to that of a, quote, pampered concubine. And that's from also from 2E. I feel like those could be added onto the harlot table. Toddy tart and pampered concubine. They sound like they belong on there, but they're actually they're not on the harlot table. (laughs) at all they are their own alliterations which is just great her voice is said to be a quote throaty purr and to give the feeling of being brushed by the softest fur or velvet it's a very sensual voice she's also described as being very fickle and flighty and enjoys toying with beautiful mortals male and female and cannot resist casually flirting with anyone she meets. We stand a bi queen. We stand. So very, very, very brief into her background. Before she was Shares, she started as Bast. That was her first name. B-A-S-T. Bast. In her first pantheon. Where she was known as a warrior. She trained under this warrior god. They were super tight. I think they became lovers later. And then she discovered a love of travel, and she just started plane hopping. Basically, she's like, I just want to explore the world and get to know people, do things. If she could have, if she's the god, that if gods had tattoos, she would have wanderlust on the back of her neck. Mm. Like if if that was a thing, she would have it. She also is known to have subsumed the powers and domains of two other deities. So, like we mentioned before, gods love taking other gods' abilities, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially if they are weak or in need of help. Sharas, or at this point in her life, Bast, she did not do this out of malice. She didn't do this e- like with evil intent. Felidae and Zalandir the Dancer, who are the two goddesses, she basically subsumed their domains. They were in need of aid, specifically Zalandir the Dancer. She needed aid protecting her people. She's an elven goddess, and she needed to protect her people, I believe, from a battle with the dark elves, from what I can remember. And she was very weak. uh, Bast came and uh, subsumed her abilities, which is where she she got a lot of her beauty from, it is said, is from Zalandir the Dancer. And um, she obtained both from her and Felidae, her more sensual powers. But she did this to aid them, not because she's like, hey, I like your domains and I want to take them. It was more out of necessity. She obtained the name of Charess after falling under the influence of, you guessed it, Shar, the evil deity, whom I also share a name with. It's great how that works out. (laughs) Love that for me. And for those who are unfamiliar, Shar is an evil deity of basically thieves, like assassins, thieves, secrets. She's a human deity, bad news bears. I believe she also has canonically rule over the Shadowfell at some point. So basically, a goth queen. There are worse gods to share a name with. <laughs> <laughs> And Shares got her name because she is known, she became known when she fell under Shara's influence to be her aspect. So like a second-in-command type, she followed her orders, etc. And when they traveled together and when they did hashtag just girly things, they were known as the Maidens of the Forbidden Fruit, I wanted to look more into why that name was the way that it was, but honestly, I think just leaving that name where it is and not even delving deep into it says a lot <laughs> about not only Shar but also just female goddesses.
0: If that isn't a biblical reference, I don't know what what is.
1: Oh, yeah, that's true, too. I don't take influence from other... Gods and pantheons? I don't know what you mean. That was my Edgar Greenwood impression. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, and a quote, again, from 2E um, for char and Char during this time. Those who encountered char S, the goddess of pleasure, during this time found her beauty slowly fading and the joy of life leaving her eyes. So... During this time, it's basically like her rebellious emo phase, but because she was toying with evil, her beauty started to fade, which is interesting because we're not talking about it in this episode, but a lot of evil goddesses are described as very beautiful. So I'm wondering why, in S's case, when she toyed with evil, she lost her beauty. I guess it's something to think about. That is
0: interesting, yeah. I don't necessarily know that I have anything
1: constructive to say but it's interesting maybe something to hold on to i guess for later discussions mm. and ending out her time with Shar, char s was eventually released by soon because they're hashtag bffs for life and totally hashtag why we put them together in this episode because they are best friends boogie woogie woogie just like you and me oh <gasps> are you saying that i am char s Contradicting literally what you just said 10 minutes ago, and that you're soon. <laughs> mm, sure, we can make that analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go too far into Sharas's religion because really all you need to know is there's is a lot of revels. <laughs> she, in order to worship her, you participate in. Revels for literally anything you can think of. I think she is, Charis is credited with being the goddess with the most revels, the the most excuses to party. So the sun goes down, party. The sun comes up, party. Birth of a child, party. First snow, party. Like everything. And I think in the language that they use, it's very clear that these revels are very likely just big ass orgies. Her dogma, these specific points were taked, taken from 2nd edition, but they remain the, basically the same throughout 3rd edition and beyond. The priests of Charas are expected to live lives in the decadent sensual fulfillment of themselves and others. They believe that pleasure is to be sought out at every opportunity and life is to be lived as one endless revel. So they are encouraged to just... Live free and be merry through the pursuit of pleasure, basically. So they live lives of hashtag YOLO. Oh, 100%. Yeah. They are beings of desire. And when they see something they desire, they take it. Not a bad dogma to live by, I think, in the grand scheme of things. Men and women were allowed to be priests of her school, which I found refreshing because I half expected it to just be women but it wasn't and I was pleasantly surprised however they do they are described as if you are a priest or priestess of S, you must wear your hair long and dress suggestively depending on what area you're in even if like you express your pleasure your sexuality in not clothing doesn't matter you gotta be You got to look good. You got to be dressed promiscuously. Mm. She has, in earlier editions, spells, as most gods and goddesses do, that they specifically give to, I believe, just their clerics, but it could also be given to just any worshiper of the god and goddess. And normally I would gloss over something like this like oh you get this spell I usually try to gloss over mechanics when we talk about lore and stuff but I just couldn't this time. <laughs> I just couldn't. I had to say something. If you see something say something. I saw it and now I'm saying something about it. The the first one I wanted to point out is called intensify sensation. And it's exactly what you think it is, but I'm going (laughs) to read it down anyway. Because if I had to read it, you all have to hear it. (laughs) The first paragraph reads, Any physical or emotional sensation can be heightened to unbelievable heights, often disconnecting the recipient from reality, creating an extremely heightened interest or emotion, and proving to be an immense distraction from dealing with fast-paced and changing circumstances, such as in a combat situation. Interesting. My note here was, bitch, who would use this in battle LMAO? (laughs) I get, that's a distraction. You're not wrong. But who would read that and be like, yep, that's a battle spell. It's a tactic, 100%. It's a very creative use of a spell, 100%. But I... I find it so unlikely from a world-building standpoint that if a god or goddess is crafting this spell with with their holy magic, they create a spell called Intensify Sensation. And they're like, you know what my followers would really love this for? When they're going after just like a horde of corrupted goblins. No, it doesn't make any sense.
0: I mean, you distract the goblins in order to take
1: the item and run away? Maybe. I love that. I love I love it when players use spells in weird ways, like hey, I want to use minor illusion to, I don't know, conjure the image of this goblin's long-lost brother or something, or just like use a spell in battle that's not necessarily meant to be used in battle. Like I'm all about that. But the fact that this spell specifically has to say such as in a combat situation. Like, it has to specifically say, no, you got to use this in combat. They knew what they were doing. They knew what they were doing. The other one isn't as explicit, but I still felt the need to say it because, of course, it's named this. It's called The Kiss of Us. and it's basically a modified version of Limited Wish, which I believe we've talked about before. It's just Wish, but it has some sort of limitations to it, so you can be granted basically anything you want but the kiss of Shares specifically is granting the person who is being cast on, so granting them their fondest and most pleasurable wish, but it only lasts until the following dawn. Very interesting spell, but of course it has to be a kiss. Like, it can't just be, like, pat on the shoulder, a little <laughs> boop on the snoot. No, it's got to be la 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 which, you know, makes sense, but... You gotta stick to her brand, which is being a sex goddess, so you gotta make it a kiss. I don't even remember if they specifically have to kiss for this, but I would be disappointed if they didn't, because why else would you name it that? All right, so that's 2E and 3E really flush her out. There's a lot more about her, but that's the basic gist of it. She's a sex goddess. She's all about pleasure, all about YOLO, all about wanderlust in her personal life. By 4th edition and 5th edition, they just dropped all the sex stuff and just made Shara's all about cats. So in 5th edition, you only see Shara's mentioned as her first name, Bast, under in the player's handbook under Egyptian gods, which I thought was weird. And we'll get to the Egyptian gods part later because that's kind of part of the, the context portion of this section. But... I just thought that was interesting that all the like from first edition to 3.5 they just really leaned hard into this sex stuff which is great like I, I'll make fun of this stuff all I want and some of the wording is a bit iffy which I'll get into but at least Charis knew who she was or the writers knew who she was and sh- they leaned into it but by, by fourth and fifth edition they just completely mixed that all together and said nope goddess of cats doesn't even have that name anymore just all lost to time kind of disappointing actually But before I get into the rhetoric stuff that I mentioned earlier, I just, I have a little bit of a rant, and I know I've already been talking for a bit, but I just have to put this out in the world. I've been saving up this rant for weeks as soon as I figured it out, and I would like to say my piece. (laughs) Um, So when I was doing research into Shairas, and I was looking at her depictions throughout D&D. In 3.5, and 3rd edition, under the, like, who worships this god section, up until this point, Shares is basically being worshipped by pleasure seekers and usually prostitutes. And I remember reading that it was prostitutes that were proud of their profession, which was such a weird distinction <laughs> to make. I didn't put it in my notes, but I guess I'm mentioning it now. Like, it's only prostitutes, but they're proud of it. Very weird distinction. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. In third edition, the worshipers are listed as hedonists, sensualists, and bards.
0: Oh, okay. Up until (laughs)
1: this point, bards were never mentioned. They were never mentioned. But in 3.5... They are mentioned as worshippers of Charas, the sex goddess, and also many of her clerics are also known to multi as bards, mm-hmm. and I thought, huh, that's interesting, that's so, that's suspicious, <laughs> that's weird. I had never, up until this point, seen any mention of bards until 3.5, so I have a theory that whoever was in charge of 3.5 and expanding the lore there who originated the stupid stereotype. And yes, it's my opinion that it's stupid. My opinion. I'm not. It's my opinion. I can say what I want. The stupid <laughs> the stereotype where bards are all sex obsessed. Like they're just a sex obsessed class. Like you can't play a bard. And not be either promiscuous or obsessed with sex. Like, I'd never seen bards specifically mentioned in any, like, worshipping any god until 3.5 in this. And I about lost my shit, as you could probably tell. (laughs) Because in case you're not familiar, I am a firm believer that you can play whatever class you want, however you want. And stereotypes, I'm sure, originated from somewhere. But for some reason, probably because I just I really personally love bards and I love playing bards. I just I'm so annoyed that they they are like the one class that is just so watered down into like, oh, you play a bard? Have you slept with a dragon? Like, bitch, no. I played a bard. I got the wish spell and I killed a wannabe god. What did you do? Like... Anyway, that's my little rant. Thank you for listening. I think it originated in 3.5. So whoever's responsible for that, hit me up. And I just want to talk. I just want to talk. I'm on the edge of a cliff, but I just want to talk. Cool? Cool. Okay. <laughs> Not suspicious at all. Anybody who's listening to this, you didn't hear anything. <laughs> for legal reasons, this is all a joke. <laughs> for legal reasons, this is a joke. <clears> hmm. <throat> Anyhoosal. Uh, do you have any opinions on that? Or is it just me who has the strong opinions on bards? <laughs> or just anything that I've said in the past, like, 20 minutes? <laughs> yeah, I...
0: Yes, there's a stereotypes, stereotype on bards. Yes, they supposedly have a lot of sex. No, I didn't know about it before I started playing D&D. Does it make sense? Eh! They have a hard charisma. So... Does that mean they have to make the everything sexual? No.
1: <laughs> but does that mean... Well, here's the thing. <laughs> They're not the only charisma casters. Yeah. Aren't, warlocks, are warlocks are charisma casters. Yeah. Sorcerers are charisma casters. Fuck right off with that. <laughs> <laughs> They're not the only ones. There could be horny sorcerers and warlocks, which I think warlocks have their own sexual connotation, now that I think about it. But sorcerers usually don't hmm so the last thing i'll say in regards to Shara before we get a little bit more into the analysis and context of her and i guess this is just like a transition into the analysis because this is just something i noticed when i was reading up on her she is very clearly explicitly as much as you can be a sex goddess would you agree lissa from what I've said about S and like her domains and what she stands for, like she's a sex goddess. Mm-hmm. I mean, a woman who plays
0: on the sensual pleasures of characters is as much a sex goddess as you can get a sex goddess without outright saying so.
1: I agree, but the word "sex" is never used in any description of her from AD and D to Fifth Edition, not once. It's always They use phrases instead. I wrote down a couple. Heavenly baths and massages. Every other pleasure imaginable and just plain pleasure. They never use sex, but they use those phrases. It's implied, I would say. Yeah, it is implied. So I was just like, why is that? And then I remember TSR had a code of ethics. (laughs) And I wondered if maybe... That was why, like they just weren't allowed due to their own code of ethics. And I started, we, we have a couple editions of their code of ethics and we'll link to them in the sources. And they go, the, the code of ethics goes through many iterations. We have one here from 1982, 1994, 1992 again, and a couple of memos, but I won't be talking about those. But the first Code of Ethics that we found explicitly states, so this is kind of, it's not even called the Code of Ethics, it's just labeled as the standards for written material. And specifically when we're talking about second edition, this was still under TSR. Third edition, I believe, is when they were acquired by Wizards of the Coast. And I would argue most of the lore for s specifically, I'm not sure about soon, that was Yo bag, but... For Shares, most of her lore was written in 2e, and it was just kind of repeated in 3.5, and then the bard stuff was added. So when most of her lore was being written and then transposed later on into 3.5, they were abiding by this code of ethics, I'm assuming. And one of the codes is literally the last one. Sex, perversion, or any inference to same is strictly forbidden is part of their code of ethics. But like... It is implied, though. It's so heavily implied that it's what you're talking about is sex. Like, you don't say it. So I guess it's technically not Mm. talking about sex. But they also don't – it's sex perversion. So I don't even know what they mean by that. And then another one, I guess this might actually be a content warning for the way this is worded. So give a pause content warning for the uh, big r word another one of their code of ethics is rape or seduction are never to be portrayed or discussed seduction is on the same line as rape first off that's just inherently problematic i don't know what else to say about that but these two and this is the i believe 1982 code of ethics Inferring to sexual perversion or a portrayal of seduction, Char S. is all of those things, kind of. I, again, I don't know what they mean by sexual perversion, but I'm just inferring because they never used the word sex. Maybe that's what they meant. And in a, a later version of their Code of Ethics, they again kind of lump these things together. Rape, lust, and sexual perversion And then in this version, I believe this was a couple years later, they list sexual themes of all types should be avoided. Rape and graphic lust should never be portrayed or discussed. Sexual activity is not to be portrayed. Sexual perversion and sexual abnormalities are unacceptable. For the purpose of this code, the concept of love or affection for another is not considered part of this definition. What? Yeah. Yeah. They're lumping together rape and lust, which should not be lumped together. They are not nearly the same thing. And again, it's a very broad depth. I don't know what they mean by sexual perversion, because if this was written in the 70s and 80s, that could infer LGBTQ relations. That could infer interracial which technically this is post-60s, so maybe not. That might be a bit of a stretch, but yeah. Their code of ethics is something. I think we might just need to do a whole episode on their code of ethics yeah, and just break it down that's a just its
0: own episode.
1: Well, oh, there we go. We got another episode outlined for you here on the Stop the Trolls. I just felt that that was worth mentioning because maybe that's a reason sex is never explicitly stated, but I also think these codes of ethics are very hypocritical. Because they very clearly do not abide by their own rules. If you just look at the rhetoric of how Shares is written, of how her revels are written, how if you worship her, you're doing, you know, sensual massages. Like, what the fuck else are you supposed to think they're doing? It's a lot. I don't know. Any opinions before I I just start screaming into my my mic? (laughs) Um, it's confusing to be honest it's in what way I mean
0: depending on what year and what like version of the code of ethics you're looking at and what edition I guess you're looking at we would have to do like a whole deep dive on that in itself but from what it sounds like it sounds like they didn't follow their own code of ethics which begs the question why they had one in the first place because
1: Mm -hmm.
0: If you're not gonna follow it, it's it's a moot point to have.
1: Maybe just to like save face, or I don't know if there's a legal reason you would need one. Again, this is just giving us more content to look into for a deep dive on their code of ethics because I think like just even looking at some of these other ones we won't go into it, but looking at some of these other things that they have on here, I can. Because we've been doing this podcast for almost a year now, I can name off the top of my head ways that they've broken this code of ethics. Yeah, while they were still under the while they were still under TSR and even sometimes the Wizards, which Wizards wouldn't necessarily have to abide by this code of ethics, but they did take a lot of what TSR did and just republish it, which happened with S and two and three. So yeah, I guess that's just something to sit on that. Sex goddesses and horny goddesses and the way that sex is portrayed in D&D, even to this day, as far as I could see in the goddesses that we studied, they never say sex. It's just, it's implied. But then, then again, I don't know if that's true, because the drow explicitly had orgies (laughs) with demons. (laughs) So I don't even know. There's just so many contradictions here.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's,
1: it's a lot of contradictions. And so
0: from... The code of ethics: You're not supposed to have sex goddesses. So you have goddesses of love and passion and sensual pleasure,
1: fulfillment. Sensual fulfillment is specifically what it is. <laughs> the fuck else is sensual fulfillment? Just cupping somebody's cheek <laughs> and not their butt, like their face cheek. <laughs> like I don't know. For fuck's sake. Anyway. <laughs> I guess we can leave it at that, because I think we need to do more dives into the Code of Ethics to really get into that. But that came up when I was researching Shara, so I thought it was important to talk about for the context. of Maybe this is why this they did worded it this way. So while I've been going through a little bit of what Shara looks like, what she is responsible for, maybe some historians or um, lovers of different pantheons of gods in the real world may have caught on to a couple of similarities with some goddesses that already exist. And you wouldn't be wrong because it, I thought it was an interesting I wanted to trace where s came from to kind of contextualize her more and get to understand her more and it was not hard to do. Um she is very clearly inspired by the goddess Bast slash Bastet from Egyptian mythology. So her first iteration is literally called Bast. Not even, not even change the name at all. And then she became Shara's when she went to the Forgotten Realms. So she went under this transformation. Bastet is the goddess of protection, pleasure, and the bringer of good health. She also has the head of a cat and a slender female body, not voluptuous, slender. But I mean, the sentiment is obviously still there. Another similarity she has to Bastest, Bastet is, according to Egyptologist Geraldine Pinch, uh, citing Herodotus, women were freed from all constraints during the annual festival at Bubastus, which was one of Bastet's festivals. They celebrated the festival of the goddess by drinking, dancing, making music, and displaying their genitals. Okay. Yeah. Historically. Hmm. So, I mean, that's kind of what I pictured one of S's revels as. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, drinking, dancing, making music, flashing people. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of where the comparison ends, though, because while she is the Egyptian goddess of, like, pleasure, and later on, I think she's also described as the goddess of women's secrets cats and fertility that's kind of where the comparison stops because Bastet also has a lot of ties to childbirth good health protection domesticity the home and Charis doesn't have any of that she is not a quote family or protector goddess she is very much I she's like a one-trick pony basically they really lead into the pleasure and women's secrets kind of aspect of Bass and just took that, watered it down, and created Shares. So really the only things they have in common are their appearance um, and maybe pleasure. So they just took an aspect and ran with it. And to end that kind of comparison, I also did find a quote from Ed Greenwood in that article we were talking about earlier in Dragon Magazine, which I thought was interesting. He says... He wanted no direct Egyptian, Mayan, Chinese, Greek, or such-like mythology on his pantheon, preferring instead vaguely Norse, Celtic, or old fairy England flavor. Favorite deities such as Ishtar, Mitra, and Set had to be regretfully abandoned. Other deities and demigod deities could be adapted with cosmetic, such as name, appearance, and minor power changes. So he didn't want any influences from Egyptian mythology in his pantheon, according to this article. So I'm wondering if S was his idea. She wasn't in the original article that this is from. So I'm wondering if it was even his idea at all or if we should credit him with it. Because it seems like when he was first creating them, he didn't want any of that influence at all. I don't know. Just something to think about. Not much to say about that. And then when I was also looking into Sharesa's origins or where else she may have came from, I came came upon the Greek goddess Hedone. I think I'm pronouncing that right. H-E-D-O-N-E, Hedone. She is the goddess of pleasure, enjoyment, and delight in Greek mythology. And also where the term hedonism came from. So I guess there's a little bit of Greek mythology in there, too. Mm. Which, again... Ed Greenwood didn't want, but it's there. It's very clearly there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So my theory is they wanted a sex goddess (laughs) or they wanted somebody to represent. I'm sorry, not sex, pleasure. They wanted a pleasure goddess. They took inspiration from Egyptian mythology, watered down this half cat, half woman because of reasons that I don't know, really ran with it. And made her who she is, rhetoric notwithstanding with the sex stuff, made her a sex goddess. And then by the time 4th edition came around, she didn't exist anymore, which is sad. I really, I kind of, when I was researching Charis, I really ended up liking her a lot. She stands for freedom and women's liberation and embracing women's sexuality, I think, if you, you know, just look at what she's she stands for, really. Yeah. I really end up liking her, so I'm kind of sad that she's not really mentioned at all in later editions. I have opinions about why
0: I think that is, but I might save those for the conclusion. You could say them here if
1: you want to, because that's really all I have for this section. Well, as you said,
0: they shifted a lot of stuff between each version of the Forgotten Realms I think we talked about that um yeah each edition so to speak each Forgotten Realms edition and I think for each edition they had to scrap everything they would look at all of the gods as a cohesive whole and they would try to cover as many different aspects as they could and I think they just had enough gods to do with sensual pleasure. I mean, not sensual pleasure because sensual
1: what did you call it? <laughs> what was the rhetoric? Sensual something. What sensual ple- like well um sensual massages. Yeah, they uh, so they
0: they covered that aspect using some other god already. So it was Sensual fulfillment. There, sensual there we go. That was the term. They had a They had a god or goddess to cover that aspect, so having multiple goddesses for the same thing just was irrelevant, which you can see sort of if you follow through what the gods and goddesses are in each edition. You can sort of track the different ones and how they just disappear and pop up and then are gone completely. And they put it down to... Oh, you know, the lore changed or there was this big war and they were killed in battle or this big thing happened. And as a result, they lost followers.
1: hmm. That could be it. That could be it. I, there wasn't a whole lot of information on what became of Shara's. If she was part of like the spell plague or any of these other really big cataclysms that happened in God lore. Mm. So I think she just I I, I remember coming across a a tweet from Ed Greenwood that said like somebody asked him on Twitter, like, does Shara still exist in 5E or in your mind, does she still exist? And he says that she does, but all of her temples have basically been destroyed. And very rare would you find a worshiper of her. And by his own definition, when a goddess doesn't have worshippers and people don't believe in her. Does she actually exist? Yeah. This is my campaign to hashtag bring back Shares bigger and better than ever before. (laughs) We should have a fifth edition gods and goddesses source book and we should have S in there and she should be a goddess of sex and sexual fulfillment, not sensual fulfillment, sexual (laughs) fulfillment. And just own it. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with having a sex goddess. And the way that she was portrayed, I was honestly expecting to find a lot more problematic stuff in her lore. And honestly, not really. She just knew what she was. She owned it. And she was known for being a flirt, which is kind of a stereotype that, like, if you're a sex goddess, you're a flirt. Or if you're really promiscuous, like, you obviously have to flirt with people. And, yeah, it leans into stereotypes and stuff. But, I mean... It's not as bad as some other gods and goddesses, which I think is a great transition into soon (laughs) (laughs) from what we know about soon. um, She is a little bit more problematic in her depiction, I think. So I guess I will save all of my other closing thoughts on Shares for our conclusion. But if that's all we got to say about that, uh, we can go ahead and move on to our second goddess part three. Soon. Part
0: three, soon. So that's spelled S-U-N-E. Not like soon, as in, you know, soon. <laughs> I do <Ominous. hope. laughs> Soon. So soon is not a sex goddess. She is a love goddess, but she is sexy. Therefore, my hypothesis is that a love goddess who is sexy is therefore a sex goddess. Thank you. <laughs> Section done. Perfect. Roll it <laughs> done. out. I'm done. Uh, so soon is colloquially and by colloquially, I mean by me, known as the red-headed bombshell, aka the airhead, aka sex on legs, look but don't touch. Actually, she is known as fire hair. Lady Firehair, Lady of Love, and Princess of Passion. She's royalty, oh. Yes. She is a greater goddess, so she does have a lot of power. She is a chaotic good goddess. Her domains are those of life and light in 5e, but in previous editions she ruled over chaos, charm, Good and protection. Most of her worshippers are lovers, artists, half elves, and adventurers. Um, but she does rule over humans as well. Her portfolio includes that of love, beauty, passion, and in AD and D specifically, she also had charisma. Her symbol is a beautiful face of ivory-skinned human maiden with long red tresses, and as we know, Gary Gygax liked using a what's the thing? That, not a dictionary. Thesaurus. Thesaurus. <laughs> <laughs> now to find synonyms. What's that thing? Is that that's a,
1: that's a thesaurus? Is that a
0: thesaurus? Okay, it's a thesaurus. Yeah. So, so Tresses is just hmm. long hair. Red hair. Yeah. She has a silken slash... No. Silken sash, or whip as a weapon. Her relationships include she is an ally of Shira's. Uh, she does have a rivalry with an elven goddess called Hanalee Selanil. And their rivalry is essentially... They represent the same thing on both sides. Soon is a human version of Hanalee Selanil. And Hanalee is the elf version. And they're somewhat similar. And then they have this rivalry of who rules over elves and humans and has the bigger following. They even live on the same plane. That was, until you get to 3.5... Well, no. Until you get to 4e, in 3.5, Hanalee still exists. So she was the goddess of love, beauty, and art, chaotic good. She had a heart of gold, lady gold heart, joyful, beautiful things, intense love of youth, happiness and beauty. Yada, 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 yada. Same Mm. things. Same picture. And then in 4e, they're just looking at the list of goddesses and they're like you know what we don't even need to and their rivalry isn't even interesting anymore so we'll just scrap them and we'll just shove hannah lee into soon and be like they were the same person all along and nobody will know the difference but we know so soon is also known as hannah lee Selenil, if you look at anything after 4e <laughs> she is a flirt And instead of listing all of the romances that she has had with uh, all of the gods, the source books just find it easier to list the ones that she hasn't romanced, which are Malar, Auril, Umberly, Talos, Talona, and Tempus. And these are essentially because they destroy beautiful things, which is a big no-no. When you find out what soon represents, which is supporting pretty things like an airhead.
1: Can I ask a a clarification question? So by romance, does it literally just say romanced or is it inferred that they banged? It says romanced.
0: Whether or not that includes banging or not, I do not know. It does not go into specifics.
1: We want the tea though. (laughs) I do. I want the tea. But, you know, I'm never going to get it because D&D never talks about sex <laughs> for some reason. Mm. Oh,
0: but don't worry. She's, she's a flirt, but she's not a hoe because she reserves her love for the mortals who follow her. She's a pure being. Gross. In that way. Mm-hmm. She does have an avatar. And like I talked about avatars earlier in this episode. You want to know what classes her avatars are? I don't like the way you said that. (laughs) So she is a bard slash cleric. Of course she is. Of course she is. Mother. (laughs) Depending on what edition you look at, she's always beautiful. There are always many adjectives to describe her beauty. If we take a look at AD&D, Forgotten Realms campaign guide, Adjectives like fairest, radiant, most beautiful, stunning, incredible. Oh, and don't forget, she's a redhead. 2e, Faith's and avatars. Shown as the most beautiful woman in the realms with sweeping, radiant red hair and incredible charms. A human female of unearthly beauty clad only in a diaphanous silken gown and her impossibly long, sweeping red hair, which often assumes the appearance of flames.
1: That's kind of badass, not gonna lie.
0: She is the deer in the headlights, TM. She has four different appearances. So we have golden skin and almond-shaped eyes, or mahogany skin and dark amber or honey eyes, or reddish skin and prominent cheekbones, or ivory white skin and eyes sky blue or forest green. And this appearance is so beautiful and so unearthly that when you look at her, you literally take damage. It hurts to look at her, according to AD&D. The sight of Soon's form can slay if she so desires saving throw versus death magic at minus four or die (laughs) i don't know what that means but um it sounds pretty bad no mortal can resist getting a good look at such supreme beauty no animal or giant animal analog Will even attempt to harm her. No male being of any sort can lift a hand or think to harm her once they see her. It is simply impossible.
1: And that's what quoted. about wait? What about the what about gay men? What about the lesbians? Hello, they don't People exist. People are attracted to women that are men. Oh
0: my! They God. don't exist in AD&D. Mm. So. She also has what's called manifestations. They're, like, things that she creates and powers that she gives to her clergy and her followers, which include, according to AD&D, phantom caresses or kisses and soft crooning noises. Also, unseen surge of excitement... In the air, making things happier, energetic, forcibly attuned to the sensual.
1: But she's not, like, none of her domains are actually, like, like passion or sensuality. It's love. It's love and passion. Okay, passion. Okay, well, at least there's that,
0: I guess. So she will make you smell, taste, and feel things, essentially. She plays on the senses. But it's not sex because she's not a sex goddess. Her personality, she's benevolent, whimsical. She will alternate between deep passions and shallow flirtations. Of course, she enjoys flattery. She does not like ugly things. And no one can be mad at her because of her personality. Quote, I am doing quotes quotes so she's the equivalent of an airhead essentially is what they're saying nobody takes her seriously because she's just whimsical and annoying she's non combative because she quietly supports mistra who is this goddess of magic in order to not anger shar because shar got angry at her for supporting mistra so she just
1: quietly supports I'm mistra very angry yeah very angry at her
0: She is vain. She is hedonistic. She looks for beautiful things with all the senses. And she wants to be sensual and she
1: seeks to experience pleasure. That's. just sounds like Shara's. (laughs) That just. The hedonistic part just sounds exactly like Shara's. Like, no wonder they're BFFs. And now I'm convinced that they're girlfriends. They're not just BFFs, best friends (laughs) for life. They are dating now in my head. Of course, because she's. I don't know, like, I get
0: this feeling... So, like Lolf, she has a clergy of female dominating priestesses. Like Lolf, there is no leadership. Because it's based on whims, so you do what you want, and there's no hierarchy, there's no... What, what is... The Sims for whims, what is this? <laughs> so... Priestesses will literally drop things to run, af- to run off after beautiful things. Because they all have the same personality type? Because they like things that are pretty, so your goal is to have and find things that are pretty. So it is completely acceptable to drop everything you are working on in the temple mid-meeting to just, as soon as you find out there's a pretty thing in the south, to go after it. Doesn't matter what
1: you were doing. You go, hey. Hey, did you hear about this crystal that can (laughs) amplify magic and also is just like this giant prism? (gasps) Gimme. And then just all run and get it. The goals of Sunites, which is
0: the who follow her, you must compliment other people five times a month. You have to try to be pretty and you must enjoy pretty things. And so when you do this... I, I'm quoting now in five, from 5E. They are attractive examples of either gender. Her Sunites. Mm. You will use disguises if you have to do what they call dirty tasks to, pro- to protect and your body and to conceal your identity. But otherwise you do not hide your body because you're supposed to show off your body because it's beauty except if you have scars because that's imperfections and imperfections are no no. So you get use magic to get rid of imperfections obviously. But you do support the arts because arts is prettiness and you support artists because artists make pretty things and you learn about fashion, you learn about cosmetics. You are esthetes and hedonists, so you seek out pleasure. You are encouraged to say yes. According to 2E, although Sunite clergy can rebuff unwanted Im- unwanted advances, they should strive to build friendships and romantic feelings between themselves and others, and in general, wherever they go, so that love may prosper everywhere. Day, would you like to say something?
1: <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Encour- in- So you're okay, that can be read in two ways, both very problematic. The first way is let's say you're being pursued by somebody in a romantic way that you do, you're not attracted to, you don't want a romantic relationship with, but you have to say yes to encourage friendship and romantic feelings, even if you don't have that. And then, two, do I have to say it out loud? Probably. Again, content warning. Content warning. Content warning. If you are raped, like, what does that mean for that? That I don't like that. I don't like that. I do not. Li- that is awful. Like, what an awful, awful, awful thing to, like, make a group of people who has faith in someone believe in. Like, what an Like, you can't say No even if you don't want to do something, whether it's sexual or whether it's even having a friend in your life. Like that, that's awful. Well, technically, no, you can rebuff unwanted
0: advances. You are just encouraged to say yes. So yes, but no.
1: I don't know what's worse. <sighs> that doesn't make it, that doesn't make it better. Like it. I'm coming at it from the, I have, a, I know a lot of people who are very deeply religious mm. and they live their life in accordance to very specific ethics and values that they find in their religious texts if a religious text told somebody in real life obviously that we're talking about a game but you know if since this is like gods were created to in D &D, to kind of mimic real life and mimic the complexities of religion and faith in a game if somebody who is very deeply religious as a cleric or paladin or maybe just a character who is very deeply religious and they follow the credence of their god like they follow it to a T and they are encouraged to do something by their God, like they're going to do it if they f- if mm-hmm. that's the way that they practice their faith. Mm. I just that's awful. I don't even know what to say other than no. <laughs> can we not? Can can we not? It's okay to say no, just say no. What the fuck is okay, I hope they changed that in later this, editions. Cause you said they came from two E Yeah, this was two E, so they did take that out, thankfully. By the Thank time they god. got to five
0: Oh my god. Yeah, these are... Most of these are things that I picked out from the earlier editions. Just because they make me so angry. Obviously so. You have a right to be angry. Ugh. Anyway. You might be pretty and you might be privileged, but... We're not... Hateful towards poor people because we give pretty things to poor people. Because... Pretty things make us happy, therefore pretty things will make poor people happy. Obviously. This is how this logic works. In an airhead community, TM. So, they pray to Soon by looking in pools, baths, and mirrors. Because, reflections. And she will appear in the mirror and it'll turn into like a vision thingy and you can do stuff with that. They do have a reputation of the Sunites, uh, as being flighty, as being vain, and being rather superficial, but basically harmless. For some reason, the religion is very popular in large metropolitan areas, especially in nobility. I wonder why. It appeals to literary-slash-artistic people, and or people falling in
1: love and or people looking for life mates. What? Who, who wrote this appeals to literary and artistic people? A literary and artistic person would not write that, can I just say? At least in my experience. <laughs> my opinion. Hmm. My opinion. And that's something How that's still... Dare you?
0: That's something that's still in 5E is because they support the arts, therefore people who like the arts... Like soon, Hmm.
1: so (laughs) I mean, I hope that I mean if Five E is different, I would lend a little bit more of a leeway with it. But from the stuff that you're citing from earlier editions, like Two E, I think that's the that's the comparison that I don't like. But if they changed a lot of that and they took out some of the more problematic stuff, I wouldn't. Of course, like, you know, artists are lovers and blah, blah, blah. Like, that's kind of just been Mm -hmm. tale as old as time. It's a stereotype, but I can see the connection more. I'm more associating it, like, with all the things that you're saying about being an airhead (laughs) and only caring about your appearance. Like, have you seen an artist who hasn't left their house in four days because they're working on a project? I'm sorry. They don't care about personal hygiene, (laughs) like... (laughs)
0: I'm I'm sorry. I mean, obviously, this is based on real life things and not just being made
1: up. Well, then again, press digitation is a barred cantrip, I guess, (laughs) if you really want to look at it that way. Anyway, their dogma
0: includes the saying that, this is my favorite, beauty is more than skin deep, issues from the core of one's being and shows one fair or foul face to the world. And if that's not a contradiction, then I don't know what it is, because...
1: Yeah, they ju- you just said, like, about
0: scars. They don't like scars. So, TLDR, the Dogma of Soon, is every basic teenage girl's fantasy. It's about true love, romance, yada yada, faded matches, impossible love, yada yada, yada yada. You can fill in the blanks. I don't need to tell you what that is. You just, you know. <laughs> Their temples are common in human lands for some reason, because it appeals to adventurers and elves and half-elves and humans. And their temples are also public baths and places of relaxation, totally not to do with sensual pleasure or being naked or, you know. Mm-mm, no, no, no. They are mirrored and well-lit salons. Even corner shrines have mirrors
1: to check your makeup and fix it. What the fuck? This is so vain. Like this is to the point of like, I feel like this should be an evil goddess because it's taking like va- like a hundred percent, be confident in who you are. If you wear makeup, work it. If you don't wear makeup, work it. Loving yourself enjoying life's pleasures that's all fine and dandy but it's just like it's leaning into all of the bad stereotypes that have to do with that Mm. it's like it's leaning into checking your makeup and being really vain and not embracing the scars on your body and it's taking such a shallow approach to it like this could be and i hope this is just the old version of soon like the old version of soon could have been amazing and could have just been a beacon of self-love and true love. And there's nothing wrong with that. But these little details that you're getting into about checking your makeup and being distracted by shiny things and basically being a church of an airhead, it, it, it leans into all the things that why people are so hesitant to embrace their own beauty in society because you get stereotyped like this yeah like oh somebody wears makeup they're always in the bathroom checking it Mm -hmm. like it's come on you could okay my impression so far (laughs) men wrote this yeah men wrote this yeah think yeah 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 I know it's a far-fetched opinion to have but you know from context clues (laughs) I'm pretty sure men wrote this (laughs) pretty sure That is my uh, rhetorical analysis for this section. Men wrote this. What mostly. Straight men specifically. What mostly annoys me is the mirror thing with the corner
0: shrines and checking your makeup. That's from 5E. What? That's from 5E. Are
1: Are you serious? Yeah. 5E. Wizards of the Coast. You know better. We sing your praises on this podcast. What the fuck? Like what okay it's okay what okay (laughs) i don't even know anything i don't have anything to say to that do better wizards for fuck's sake
0: yeah she she has a bunch of events which includes three of them one is called green grass you frolic outdoors and be flirty in midsummer nothing to do with being sensual or having sex they have a Grand Revel, which gets people to join your church. So they do this by showing off a lot of pretty objects to make people join their church. <laughs> because that's that's how you get people to join churches. We have pretty things. Join us. <laughs> and then, I don't know, this this last one is called Feast of Love. I just, it's like any... Greek, it's like any movie about Greek novelty or Greek rich people where they lay on like sofas, they eat grapes, they're fanned by servants, they eat cheese and wine, they watch dancers and listen to poetry while laying on sofas. Essentially, it's what happens. Wow. Um, great. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not playing on stereotypes at all. In any of those.
1: No, this whole thing. Definitely not a stereotype, 100%. (laughs) In 4E, you get feats
0: like you had in your section. You get, there is this feat that you can get, which is called Soon's Touch. You can touch people. You can invoke the power of your deity to touch people. Touch them where? Doesn't say. You help them by touching them. They gain a plus two power bonus to their next attack roll or skill check that they make before the end of your next turn. You touch people. And tell me, tell me
1: that's not like sexual in any way. (sighs) Weird. I think I'm having my first devil's advocate moment on the podcast because usually you're the one to do this. I think if, if I were to just see the spell not knowing anything about soon, no. Because there are other touch spells and there, are, there is like this connotation at least with um, religion as I know it. I have a lot of Catholic family members and a lot of the times when you get blessings, you know, you eat the body of Christ, you drink the blood, the sun, yeah. And you do all that. And, but you also sometimes when you go up, you get touched on the shoulders a lot. Um, you, you shake hands, you say peace be with you. And it relies a lot on human touch. So I can kind of see where it is coming from, from a religious aspect. However, knowing what we know about soon, yes, I think they chose the word touch very specifically. (laughs) But if if I were to see this, like, Two months ago, not knowing anything about who Soon was, I wouldn't have thought anything about it. But now knowing everything about Soon, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's sexy. <laughs> like, I, when, that's why I ask, like, where, touch where? Because, like, everything leads me to believe it's a, ni- a nice butt touch, like a boob squeeze, like a nice little peck. Mm. Like that
0: phantom, that phantom caress and the crooning that plays yes. in the temples of Soon. Just exactly nonstop.
1: Yeah. So, yes, but actually no, in (laughs) terms of reading it that way. It depends if you have the context. Well, speaking of context, it doesn't
0: take a genius, if you know anything about goddesses, to know who or to guess who soon would be based off, which would be the Venus, if you ask the Romans, or Aphrodite, if you ask the Greeks, goddess. So Ed Greenwood in, I think, Dragon Magazine, in uh, Dragon Magazine 54, did actually say that Soon was based on Aphrodite. And if you look at how her name is spelled, if you take Venus backwards and leave out the first letter, the V, Venus, Soon, leave out V. (sighs) That's where her name... It's the
1: same picture.
0: (laughs) That's where her name might come from. I mean, that's not like... Nobody has actually said that that's where it comes from, but somebody did say that hypothetically that could be true. And it just makes sense to me. So I'm going to put it out there. (laughs) It's the same picture. So comparisons and similarities between Soon and Venus slash Aphrodite. Red hair... Lovers of many gods. Personification of beauty and sexuality. Depicted naked in paintings and sculpture. Obsessed by artists. A mirror as a symbol for them because of their obsession for beauty. As Ed Greenwood did say, soon was originally Aphrodite in AD&D. So... We see here that Aphrodite was literally in AD&D in the first edition. The goddess of love and beauty, the main ability to generate strong passion in mortals and gods alike. With a simple wave of her hand, she causes one to ten hit points of pain to any who would harm her. No saving throw. And extremely vain and jealous goddess. Is
1: Soon jealous? I don't think we talked about if Soon was jealous.
0: I it never came up as her being
1: jealous. Okay. So she she dropped that part. That's the only thing
0: that's changed from Aphrodite, is they dropped that part and made her a redhead. Alright. And I actually did find out that there is a 1932 film called The Redheaded Woman, who's played by Gene Harlow. And the story is essentially a redheaded secretary that seduces her boss and then gets married to him or something and then finds an even richer guy and goes after him to seduce him
1: is is that where the um the stereotype of like the redheaded vixen comes from is that movie or maybe even aphrodite maybe both Both maybe both because, I mean, as soon as you say that she's a redhead, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm like, oh, wait, wait why does that make sense? And then there is the stereotype of women specifically who have red hair, mm-hmm. that they are sexually promiscuous. They are overly sexualized. They especially. Yeah. They, yeah. There, there's just a certain image of specifically, I'll say white women with red hair.
0: Mm-hmm. Specifically.
1: Yeah. Pale white women with red hair. Would you say ivory-skinned? Yes, I would, actually. <laughs> if you want to thesaurus this, yes, I would say ivory-skinned. And I have a conspiracy theory.
0: Oh? So, do you want to know what the color of Mary Jo Gygax's hair was? <laughs> Black. <laughs> You would be wrong. Ah, dang. She was a redhead. And there is a trope called Heroes Want Redheads. Oh, I did not know that. And you want to know who wanted to be the hero of his own life, as per me saying it on our
1: very first episode? (laughs) Would it be Gary Gygax? It would. So do you think that soon... And, like, how she was eventually, like, from Aphrodite to how she is now, was influenced by the appearance of Gary Gygax's wife. I would say she could have been. It could be a sort
0: of hmm. hint, hint, nudge, nudge to the secretary of TSR. Hmm. You know, the, clea- the cleating lady, the one who did the typing The secretary. (laughs) From her little
1: business card that we talked about Mm -hmm. on the advertising episode. Oh, man. I mean, the comparisons are quite striking. I wouldn't say, I mean, it is kind of a conspiracy theory because we don't 100% know. And we also don't know how much of a hand Gary Gygax had in some of the world building of N. Greenwood. But I mean, it was, TSR was his company, So Mm -hmm. you got to assume that everything was, like, approved by him. And if you saw a red-headed goddess that's just, like, this goddess of sensuality and love, and they leaned into that a bit with the description.
0: I mean, Aphrodite in A, D, and D didn't have any specific hair color that I know of. But then in 2E, we have soon.
1: Mm -hmm. When they were forced to, like, flesh out her appearance.
0: When they were forced to make her into a non-in-real-life goddess, Yes.
1: OK, I mean, it, I hate, like my brain is just going like, well, you know, there were two possibilities for a goddess of love and sensuality like soon. You're either going to make her a redheaded vixen or you're going to make her a blonde airhead because they kind of have those two stereotypes mm. wound into one person, but they keep the redheaded part because they want to keep the sultry aspect. But they also have a lot of the stereotype, untrue stereotype, by the way, of like a blonde airhead. They combine these two stereotypes of women into one person. But yeah, yeah, it's a conspiracy theory. Is it true? Is it not? Let us know what you think. (laughs) Thoughts, opinions? (laughs) we would love to know. I think it's a great coincidence. I'm not 100% sure if it's true, but I I like the energy you're putting out into the world. (laughs) I'm just asking questions. <laughs> the, asking the real question. <laughs> People need answers. But yeah, that's what I had on soon. Did you like her by the end of you researching her? Or did you not like her by the end of researching her? Because I really liked Char S by the time I was done because she was not that problematic. <laughs> comparatively, she was not as problematic as soon. I think... I think Soon is an airhead
0: who cannot be taken seriously. And that's just the feminist in me coming from the viewpoint that I have. I just think they did her dirty. I don't yeah. I don't think she represents anything that I would put my stamp on. And and it would be interesting to like maybe force myself to play out somebody who would follow soon to find out how I would make that character just as like a social experiment for myself. Because I really don't, I really don't like her all that much because she is an airhead. She is a typical woman sort of. And I mean, her, most of her clergy is women. So it's, it's a
1: stereotype. They've taken a stereotype Mm -hmm. and they've just run havoc with it and the fact that it's still present in 5e is I think what irks me the most because they're usually so good about fixing stuff and they are, they have been fixing a lot of stuff even in recent months but the fact that that's still around is a description because 5e doesn't have a lot of descriptions of gods full stop like they just haven't and I'll get more to that in my closing thoughts but I think there's nothing inherently wrong with being proud in your appearance of wanting to fix your makeup of wanting to present yourself in a certain way I don't think there's anything wrong with having – I don't think there's anything wrong with having interests that align with a, a quote, teenage girl. If you want to romanticize things, if you love stories of true love, if you align with anything that soon stands for, I don't think there's anything inherently problematic with it. I just think the – I think you kind of hit the nail on the head is that they did her dirty and they leaned into the most stereotypical parts of a woman – because she is depicted as a woman, of a womanly figure who would have all of these traits and just kept that. She's a caricature. She doesn't feel like a real person to me. Shares felt like a real person. She had a backstory. She, you know, had a... She had a dark side. She She even accepts people in her clergy who have a little bit of an evil alignment, even though she's good. Like, she is complicated. And I love complicated because these are characters mm. really in d and I love complications because that's what makes good characters. But Soon doesn't feel complicated to me. She just she's feels not. like a caricature. She's
0: 2D and if anyone's yeah. wondering where this description of her is, it's in the Sword Coast Adventures Guide on page 38. So it's not even in the player's oh, exactly. handbook. Hmm. Because in the player's handbook all you have is a list of deities Mm -hmm. which I have my own personal reasons why they only listed that but she is a 2d flat character who isn't well-rounded in my opinion she's vain she's flighty she's flirty and that's it
1: she's she's just a stereotype there's yeah there's nothing wrong with having any of these traits but when you have all of these traits and that's all there is to this fictional character That's where there's a problem. Like you need to complicate her a little bit more. You need to have her have weaknesses that aren't just ooh shiny object, because it's just like she was she was created in the '70s, which she was in a different time, and they haven't adapted her to complicate her in ways that they have other bits of lore yet. So hopefully they'll get to it at some point. Again, where I'm offering up our services (laughs) if they ever need anybody. I guess we could talk about more about that in the conclusion, but yeah. There's nothing wrong with what she represents. It's just h- how two-dimensional it is yeah, and how uncomplicated it is, I think, is my final thoughts on soon. Like, I want to like her, but I, I don't like her either because I don't think she's complicated enough. And I think you you're on the right track where – you want to create a character who worships her to find ways to make her better. And now I have that same urge as a DM as a pl- and as a player. Like, I'm probably starting a new campaign soon because the one I've been running has been going for like three, almost four years now. So I'm thinking about other things to do and other avenues to explore. And a lot of them is just like, I just want to fix a lot of this lore, man. <laughs> I think that's what I might end up doing because... It just it has to be at my personal table, and if if that's if that's all that's done with soon is just all these people at personal tables, then i mean i don't know i I don't want it to be that I want it to be canonical, I want to challenge it, and I want those challenges to be seen in what d and d is going forward, which is why we started this podcast, you know <laughs> I think <laughs> we want to encourage people and. People who make big decisions to do that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, that's what I had. So is it time for
1: conclusions? Closing (gasps) thoughts? Conclusions, final thoughts? Yeah. Let's go for it. Let's go to the conclusion.
0: Conclusion. Where we take five minutes to close our thoughts. Shardy go.
1: Oh, me first. Okay, okay, okay. I think I said all I had to say about my feelings on both goddesses in their individual section. So love Charest. Do not like that she is no longer around. I like what soon stands for. Do not like how she is depicted. So I think my closing thoughts is if you don't like how a god or goddess is portrayed, you can always change them in homebrew. I've said this once. I'll set up. I'll say it again. Your personal table is your personal table. D&D is a game that can be manipulated however which way you want, which best fits your gameplay. But I think there's always something to be said about official content that is released by D&D, because it sets a very specific tone. And I know there's been a lot of talk recently on the interwebs about how if D&D changes their lore, does it actually mean anything? And I think that applies to this episode because I, Mm. in my opinion, the answer is yes. When you, like, look at D&D as if you're coming in as a first time player, right? The, The thing, the things that you read, the lore, how the rules are written, they inform your opinion on the game and how you play it. So I think how things are written are very, very important. And It's kind of a damn shame that so far fifth edition has not really released any extensive content on how the how on gods just in general in fifth edition. And I think we've covered this is I think our third or fourth second. We've talked about gods a lot on this podcast (laughs) and there's usually something inherently problematic somewhere whether it's in the rhetoric or whether it's in the way that they are presented in their lore. And I think 5th edition like has this opportunity to really cement the tone that they want to achieve in their game for new players and for new and for old players, how they want the lore of Dungeons and Dragons, gods and goddesses going forward. So I hope because I'm going to continue to strive to do this in my game. I want to challenge how gods and goddesses and other mechanics, but this episode's about gods and goddesses, so... I want to continue challenging how gods and goddesses are portrayed as a player and as a DM. And I want to encourage other people to do that as well. If you don't like something, change it. But I also want to hope and pray, and pun intended, for Wizards of the Coast to release something more extensive about their gods and their pantheons and rewrite some of the stuff that's out there, give it a new twist. Lean into stuff, reintroduce stuff so that new players or players who don't want to homebrew as much have something better to work with. And I think it's a tool that can be used by anyone and you can choose to use it or not. But I think the importance is that the tool is there and the tool right now in 5th edition isn't there and it needs to be. Also, horny goddesses are cool, man. Give them the... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> give them the spotlight that they need and deserve and make God's more complicated. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk.
0: Yeah, I think on my behalf, I do think that the gods have been made in with a certain image or stereotype in mind. They're running with something that feels familiar to people so that it's easy to put their character into, like, a religion that, oh, it's the church of an airhead. Oh, you like pretty things. Oh, you know, you follow these commandments, and then you do these things and follow these religious holidays. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And because of the power that the gods have of... You either choose a god or you have your soul get destroyed on a moldy green wall until the end of days or until a demon decides to take it and use it for his personal project. Mm. You want to have good choices to pick from. Like, if you're gonna give gods this power of, like, either choose one or get fucked... (laughs) <laughs> you want to give them good options to choose from, right? That's just, that just makes sense. If you're going to have a game mechanic of we really want you to choose a god to follow, then you got to give them good options and not these vain airheads who are two-dimensional and who have nothing going for them. There is something to be said that because there have been so many additions... And specifically in the Forgotten Realms that between every edition, there's like this cataclysmic event that changes and then the rumblings happen so that things shift and gods die and new ones are born. And, you know, because it's just easier to flatten everything and start over when each edition changes so that when there have been four different editions and four rumblings and some of these gods are now dead and maybe... At this point, there are so many different gods that are in different situations, places, sizes, that when 5e comes around, that it's difficult to sort of take a handle on all of it when you have gods that are like, as story-wise, they're supposed to be dead, right? It is a bit difficult to be like, okay, well, we're going to put all of them into one book and then you can, you know, pick and choose. Because story-wise, they're, they died. But... You gotta do something, because if they're supposed to be this powerful, and if you're supposed to choose a god, again, like, you have to have the options, and you shouldn't have to go through every edition, like, A, D, and D through 5E as a new player... To be like, well, yes. I don't know yeah. I don't know who Mistra is because they're not mentioned in 5E, so I don't know if they are, but yeah. supposedly that like I
1: have to go to 2E to, to find out what she does or 3.5. The barrier of entry when it comes to choosing gods in if you play fifth edition and let's say you're just let's say you're not even familiar that there is other editions of D D. You just know that you're playing the most recent edition, so that should theoretically have all you need to know in it. And when the barrier of entry for knowledge is so high that you have to do all of this background research, look at other editions, confer with your DM that this is what it is, it it, it kind of leans into that, well, D&D is a very complicated game and it has a very high barrier of entry, which it, it, it really doesn't. Anybody can play D&D, anybody can DM, anybody can be a player. But when you don't have everything you need in each edition that can kind of stand alone, it makes things endlessly more complicated. And I wish we could compare and contrast old versions of Soon and S with 5e versions. But the fact of the matter is we can't do that because it doesn't exist. And hopefully, hopefully it's on their radar and they are going to do that. But so far they've just been focusing on specific modules, which have been really well received. And they've been doing great work. But I think, you know, we have the monster manual, we have the DM guide, we have the player's handbook, we have supplements like Xanathar's and Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. None of them really talk about gods that much. And if they do, they're just one paragraph. I think we need like a new deities and demigods or faiths and pantheons to just kind of give 5th edition a chance to really make their stance on a lot of where religion stands in 5th edition in terms of lore. Yeah. Yeah. I agree.
0: something you need, like a, somewhere, like an entry point, as you said. Because even just looking at, even just going onto the wiki of the Forgotten Realms, and looking at the stories of all these gods, you get, you can't look at the stories of the gods without going into oh, there was this war and then this happened and then this happened and then there's like 50 different links to different things and then when you open that link, it links to like different links and you have to read up on each thing and you're just like, well, I just wanted to pick a god, guys. Like, that's all I wanted. (laughs) Not to get like the entire history of the
1: Forgotten Realms. It's, (laughs) It's already overwhelming enough when an edition has like 20 plus books in it to read. And now you have this whole wiki where you have to look up (laughs) lore for stuff. I 100% get why people are very intimidated by this game and when they're creating characters and when you have to pick a god if your character is religious and if your DM hasn't homebrewed it because I'm sure a lot of DMs have homebrewed a lot of the god stuff because there just frankly isn't a lot out there. In 5th mm. edition specifically. That was well over 5 minutes. But I think our. <laughs> I think our points stand honestly. I think we made some good points. Yeah I think we did. <laughs> um, but yeah. That was our first part. Of Horny Goddesses of the Forgotten Realms. Uh, we will be doing a part 2 to this. Where on our one year anniversary. Which is Ooh. next month in February. We, turn, we
0: turn one year old. We are almost
1: a toddler. I explains so much. The next episode is we have it so far. We have a little bit of an outline, but we aren't 100% sure of the certain things. But we do know we'll be talking about Loviatar. We'll be talking about two twin goddesses, if I'm remembering correctly.
0: Yes. So, Bashaba and Timora.
1: Okay. Okay. And they are all evil-aligned sexy goddesses. So these were the two good-aligned sexy goddesses. And actually, no, one of the twins is good. One of the the twins. Twins are
0: uh, yin and yang. So you have one good and one evil. Oh, okay.
1: Still more complicated than soon. (laughs) Still more complicated than soon. (laughs) Doesn't take much. Poor soon. Poor soon so stay tuned for that next month um until then follow us on social media we plugged at the beginning we'll plug it again twitter and instagram at slovenly trolls spelled just like the title of our show you can also email us if you have any thoughts opinions anything of the sort if you are able to please donate to our patreon patreon patreon.com slash can't be killed creations that we share with our sister podcast right in the fields, we post a bonus episode there crossover episode with our sister podcast we post behind the scenes stuff and we're hoping to be a lot more active there in the new year so if you can join us over there it's a lot of fun if you can't that's okay too we're just glad you're listening glad you're listening to our rants that you put up with our bullshit <laughs> and our opinions Our bullshit opinions, because somebody has to. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are able to, because for some reason, Apple, who is one of the, the, the deities of podcasts, does not push out our podcast unless people review it. So just... Leave us a star review. Write us one. That'd be super cool too. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, or if you don't, create an account, rate us, and leave <laughs> us a review, and then delete your account. <laughs> like that's cool too. <laughs> Grow our 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 harlot um, brothel that we're <laughs> starting together. For legal reasons, this isn't actually a brothel <laughs> or a harem or anything of the sort. Or is it? for legal reasons it isn't stay it isn't.
0: tuned to find out
1: <laughs> um <laughs> i guess that's that's all, all we got we folks have. that's all we got until next time we have been the slovenly trolls and don't forget the number one rule of D D:
0: don't, don't be, be a dick, dick.
1: Bye. Bye. Slovenly trolls, Slovenly trolls, were big, bad, evil girls. The Slovenly Trolls podcast is part of the Can't Be Killed Creations podcast network. Make sure to check us out at campykilledcreations.com.